that the baptism of the Spirit is not a post-conversion experience that's sought by all and achieved by some. There is no command in the Scripture to be baptized in the Spirit. All believers are, in fact, baptized by the Spirit and incorporated into the body of Christ at the time of their their conversion. I want to just put one little insert in here. There is a practice among Baptists that I severely disagree with, and that is the practice of making fun of or mockery of the gift of speaking in tongues. Two things. Number one, it, 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 we are talking about a true spiritual gift, and we're talking about the Holy Spirit, so I don't think we really ought to mock that. And secondly, I don't know of anybody's opinion who has ever been changed by being mocked. So I think we have to be careful uh, to be respectful of other people, even if we disagree with what they believe. Now, let's look first of all at what is the gift of tongues. Where is the gift of tongues found? I think it's interesting, if not revealing, that there's no mention of the gift in tongues at all in the four Gospels, except in one disputed passage at the end of Mark. And I'll give you that scripture if you want to look at it sometime later. Mark chapter 14, verse 17. It is also the scripture that talks about the handling of serpents. Additionally, you find that in all of the epistles of the New Testament that make up the New Testament, and only one letter is the subject of tongues even mentioned at all. In all the other letters of Paul and Peter and John, there is no mention of tongues, not even a passing reference. But in one letter where there was a a problem in one church over this matter, you find the only treatment by the Apostle Paul on this subject. It's in the first letter to the Corinthians, and it's all contained in chapters 12 through 14. Second, then, what is the gift of tongues? What is the unknown language that is referred to? Is it a known language, though unlearned by the speaker? Is it an angelic language? Is it an aesthetic utterance, or is it a prayer language? Is the unknown tongue of the book of Acts the same as the unknown tongue that is regulated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, let's look first of all at the idea of a known language. Almost unquestionably, the tongues mentioned three times in the book of Acts, the tongues in its initial experience are definite known languages. Now, there is a claim made from the occurrence of the word unknown in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 2 and 4, that they are not known languages. Let me read you that. 
For he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. For no man understands him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. He that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. But if you look at the word unknown, as it appears in the King James Version, you're going to notice that that word is in italics. That means that it has no basis in the Greek. It was supplied by the translators to explain the text. What they meant by it was that no one present understood what the language was, and therefore it was unknown to those who were present. It has been taken to mean, however, that it was a language never known anywhere on earth. But in fact, there is no basis for the idea in Scripture. These were definite known languages as we see presented on the day of Pentecost. Secondly, it is evident from this account in Acts chapter 2 that tongues are assigned to unbelievers who are present. In verse 12, we read that these men who came from all over the earth, all the nations of the earth, were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They were stopped. Their curiosity was aroused. They had been suddenly stopped in their normal course of business, and this became a sign to them that God was at work in some unusual way, which is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. <coughs> Third, as the body of Christ is being formed in the book of Acts, each distinct group that hears the gospel for the first time and is added to the body, then the gift of tongues is given to them as a sign that they are indeed a part of the same body which originally took form on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, only Jews primarily were speaking in tongues. Later in Acts chapter 8, we find the Samaritans were added to the church. They were not Jews. They were not Gentiles. But when they were added to the church, there was the manifestation of the speaking in tongues as a sign. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 46, we have an account of the Gentiles who are added to the church from the household of Cornelius. They were not Jews. They were not Samaritans. They were Gentiles. Then in Acts chapter 19 and verses 1 through 4, we have the only splinter group left. They're the disciples of John the Baptist. They were no longer Jews. In fact, they were proclaiming the gospel. But they were not Gentiles, nor were they Samaritans. They were a small body that needed to be added to the body of Christ. As the body of Christ is being formed in the book of Acts, as each distinct group heard the gospel for the first time and is added to the body 
Then they experienced the manifestation of speaking in tongues as a sign that they are a part of the one body that was originally formed on the day of Pentecost. After this, there would be no need for further manifestations of speaking in tongues. What about the fact of ecstatic utterance? Some hold that while the gift of tongues in Acts was obviously a known language, the gift of tongues as spoken in 1 Corinthians is different. Being ecstatic utterance containing a revelation from God, understanding understandable only to God, and it was for private and devotional use or with an interpreter for public worship. Yet the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians is never stated to be any different than the gift of tongues that is shown in the book of Acts. To understand it as something different would require some explanation. And since Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was an associate of the apostle Paul, it is inconceivable that he would speak of a different kind of tongues and give no explanation. Some say, well, it's a prayer language. They hold that a gift of tongues is a private prayer language for use between a believer and the Lord in private. But Jesus specifically forbids ecstatic speech in prayer. And Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 Jesus is recorded in the great sermon on the mount as saying, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. It's one of those things that we take and we think we know what it means, but by vain repetition, we usually think somebody repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again. But in in reality, the term vain repetitions means to babble or to speak babble. It's, I think, again, inconceivable that the Lord would forbid something which was in itself a spiritual gift. Yet some would argue, well, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 14? What does that say? It says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Here's a contrast being drawn between prayer in the spirit tongues and praying in human language. Ironically, I think the point here is that Paul is addressing an abuse that the Corinthian believers are engaged in, and it's ironic that they're taking the very scripture that he's saying such a practice is unfruitful and unproductive and trying to turn it around and say, well, it's okay. Some appeal to Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, which says, likewise, the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought 
but the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us which, with groanings which cannot be uttered. But notice that it is the Spirit who does the groaning, not the believer. The verse pictures the believer in prayer, wanting but not really knowing how to pray in God's will. In which case, the Holy Spirit takes the sincere heart of prayer of the believer to the throne in a prayer that is pleasing to God the Father. In fact, the verse says absolutely nothing about praying in tongues. Well, how about the fact or the idea that it's an angelic language? That's supported by 1 Corinthians 13.1. There are some who claim that the gift of tongues is an angelic language that the only that only the angels and God can understand. Their support for that claim, as I said, comes from 1 Corinthians 13.1, which says, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Yet in every instance in the Bible, when angels speak with men, it is always in a known human language. An angel spoke to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 4. Isaiah over, over observed an angel before the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy. It was an angel that spoke to, to Mary and Joseph and Zechariah predicting the birth of Jesus and of John the Baptist. It was an angel that announced the arrival of Christ to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. It was an angel that ushered John into heaven in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 8. And in every instance, those angels spoke and were understood by human beings. Well, third, and this is really what trips up a lot of people, in my opinion... I will, first of all, admit I have not seen a lot of speaking in tongues, but I've never seen it done biblically. And if you're going to do it biblically, here are the guidelines to do it biblically. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26. We're going to be reading a few verses if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, 
but they are submitted, submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. There are several qualifications that are laid out here as to how uh, the gift of tongues can be exercised. First of all, no more than three in a service. Um, thus, the, any of you who have ever seen an entire congregation speaking in tongues at the same time, it was not being done biblically. Let them, let three, no more than three, and let them, secondly, be done one at a time. More than one person speaking at a time would only lead to confusion and <clears throat> The common practice of our day of standing to speak in tongues during a preaching service would then also be forbidden. No more than three in a service, one at a time, there must be an interpreter present. If anyone speaks in tongue, let one interpret. The very requirement that an interpreter be present or literally translator be present implies that the gift was not an unintelligible aesthetic utterance. The <clears throat> interpreter <clears throat> must also be someone other than the speaker. That really is only logical to me. Although I've heard of it practiced where the person stood spoken tongues, and then interpreted for themselves. That didn't make any sense. That's not logical. It would be the equivalent of me standing <clears throat> on Sunday morning and for 15 minutes sharing with you in Spanish the message and then turning and saying, and now what I just said was, why would I not just tell you what I meant in the first place? Now, here's where the kicker comes in. <clears throat> Tongues and women. Tongues not to be exercised by women, especially in the presence of men. Whatever else this verse says, and I think it's commonly misused and misapplied, we have to understand that it applies to the application of the exercise of, the, of speaking in tongues. For this, that's the context of this command as it's given. It's almost as if <clears throat> Paul realized the storm of protest that this was going to bring. So he says in verse, beginning in verse 36, or did the word of God come originally for me? Or was it you only that it was reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things which I write to you are the commands of God. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. There is one place here in verse 34 where it says, let the women keep silent in the church for they are not permitted to speak. I believe the practice that it's talking about at this point is individuals who were interrupting the message to ask questions, uh, to 
gain further understanding about what was being spoken about, but sometimes misdirected the, the conversation in a different approach. To that, Paul says, wait until you get home and then ask if you don't understand. The objection is often raised, and in 1 Corinthians 14, 39, Paul says not to forbid speaking in tongues. In fact, he says, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Does that passage then demand that we allow that practice in our churches today? The practice of the gift of speaking in tongues is not to be forbidden, Paul says, if, and there's a gigantic if here, if it's practiced by the biblical guidelines. The general practice, is, the general principle rather, <clears throat> is found in verse 40 where Paul says, let all things be done decently and in order. Fourth, is the gift of tongues for today. Belief about the validity of the gift of tongues in the church of today can pretty much be divided into two camps, continuance and secession. Continuance is those who believe that the gift of tongues is still a valid gift to be exercised in the church today. And the secessionists are those who believe that the true biblical gift of tongues is no longer a valid spiritual gift for the church. It all depends on how you understand 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. So turn back there with me for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. You recognize it is the love chapter. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they shall cease. Whether there is knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. Maybe two things you ought to underline in those verses if you haven't already and that's the part in verse 8 where it says tongues they shall cease and then in in verse number 10 when it says when the perfect has come love never fails means that love's not going to decay or be abolished love is eternal now this was in contrast to the gift of the spirits which had seemingly captivated the hearts and minds of the Corinthians. In fact, I think they had some of the same problems that charismatic people face today, and that is the belief that somehow you are spiritually superior if you speak in tongues. This was a sign that somehow you were better off than the normal Christian who could not speak in tongues. He says, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Because the focus of our study this evening is the gift of tongues, 
I just want us to focus in on that one phrase, whether their tongues they shall cease. Both verbs that are used for prophecy and knowledge are identical, and they indicate their purpose will be rendered useless by the influence of something outside of themselves. However, the verb for tongues reveals that its purpose will cease on its own even before the coming of that which will render the other two unnecessary. The main problem here then is the meaning of the phrase that which is perfect. Two major views over the time period that tongues will cease are over the how to interpret the words that which is perfect. Charismatic believers insist that when it talks about that which is perfect, it's talking about the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, they insist that all of the spiritual gifts are, na- are still now valid and useful in the church. They have not ceased. Most non-charismatics hold that when they talk about that which is perfect, it is a reference to the completion of the divine revelation, which is accomplished with the writing of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and the life of the last living apostle, the apostle John. The gift of tongues was a miraculous revelation gift during the age of miracles and the age of miracles and the age of revelation ended with the apostles so whereas prophecy and knowledge will be done away with when the perfect comes the time will come when when tongues will stop all by themselves Bible says the tongues have in have a built-in stopping mechanism. The text does not tell us when the sensation of tongues will occur, but only that the time will come when they will stop by themselves. This raises a very important question for us this evening. Has the gift of tongues ceased? And I believe the answer to that question is yes. A study of the occurrence of the gift of tongues in the Bible can help us with this. As we have already talked about, tongues surfaces early in the book of Acts and in the first epistle to the church at Corinth, and then tongues seems to disappear. God's word has no more to say about the spiritual gift of tongues after 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In in fact, the Bible addresses the issue of spiritual gifts in at least two other places, 1 Peter and in the book of Romans. Yet in spite of that fact that each of these epistles was written after the first letter to Corinth, they failed to even mention the gift of tongues, not even once. 
the answer to the question of where is tongues becomes obvious, I think. Tongues are no longer needed. The gift of tongues ceased. Christosom and Augustine, the early church fathers, were the two greatest theologians of the eastern and western branches of of the early church. They considered the gift of tongues obsolete. Writing in the fourth century, Grithosum stated categorically that tongues had ceased by his time and described the gift as an obscure practice. Augustine referred to tongues as a sign adapted to the apostolic age. In fact, in the first 500 years of Christianity, the only people who claimed to speak in tongues were members of groups that were heretical, fanatical, and unorthodox. The speaking of tongues as it's practiced in many circles... I can't say all circles because I don't know. Many circles does not follow the guidelines laid out by the Holy Spirit, which leaves us with the staggering question. If tongues, as it is generally practiced today, is not of the Holy Spirit, then what is it? That's a question you'll have to answer for yourselves. But if it's not of the Holy Spirit, we should be very, very cautious. Let's pray.